From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, March 8th. I'm Marco Werman. Syrian activists report more killings in homes. The UN's humanitarian chief says the city's Baba Amr neighborhood is in ruins. That part of uh, Homs is uh, completely uh, destroyed, and I'm uh, concerned to know what has happened to the people who lived in that part of the city. And later... This is the guy, Joseph Kony. He's the bad guy? Yeah. Why an internet video about an African militia leader has gone viral. That's ahead on The World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The government of Syria says it's united behind embattled President Bashar al-Assad. But today, the Assad regime seemed to suffer a very public defection. A deputy oil minister appeared in a YouTube video to announce his resignation. Abdul Husamedin said in the video that he's joining the revolution against the government. He served for three decades. He said he didn't want to continue serving in the crimes of the regime, and he urged others to also abandon what he described as a sinking ship. The authenticity of the video could not be independently confirmed, but it certainly added to the mounting pressure on the Syrian regime. Today, United Nations humanitarian chief Valerie Amos told reporters she was devastated by what she saw in homes yesterday. Amos was allowed by the regime to tour the Baba Amr neighborhood, which was heavily bombarded by the government for nearly a month. The uh, devastation uh, there is uh, significant. Uh, the, uh, that part of uh, Homs is uh, completely uh, destroyed, and I'm uh, concerned to know what has happened to the people who lived in that part of the city. It's not known how many of those residents in Homs were killed during the siege, and today opposition activists said government forces continue to kill people there. The reported massacres in Homs are not without precedent. Correspondent Robert Fisk sees many parallels between what's been happening in Homs and the slaughter in the Syrian town of Hama in 1982. Fisk, who reports for Britain's The Independent, says he was the only journalist to report from Hama during that siege 30 years ago. Back then, it was the current president's father, Hafez al-Assad, who was in charge. Fisk calls what we're seeing today in Homs the ghost of Hama. The Syrian defense brigades of Bashar al-Assad's father, Hafez, they smashed their way into Hama after there was an Islamist uprising, a real Islamist uprising, not of regime opponents demanding democracy, but regime opponents demanding an Islamic state. And largely, the West went along with this. We didn't mind it if Hafez al-Assad and his brother Rifat, Bashar's uncle, wanted to crush these Islamists, and they did so brutally. They destroyed most of the old medieval city of Hama, smashed down the ancient Nouriel water wheels, bombarded the ancient Great Mosque until it was nothing but rubble, killed at least 10,000 Syrian citizens. That's more, that's 3,000 more dead in 20 days than have died of the estimated death toll in the whole of Syria for the past year. And afterwards, those survivors were taken away and executed or tortured to death. So 
Hamas was on a much greater scale, a much more ruthless scale. And the West said very little about it because at the time we were much more worried about Islamic revolution than we were. I remember this was only two, three years after the Iranian revolution Mm. than we were about human rights and democracy. Robert Fisk, as an observer of Syrian history, how does that 1982 episode in Hama come into play now? I mean, where does that lead you? Although the Homs uprising, if you like to call it that, began with civilians unarmed in the streets demanding democracy and human rights, the so-called Free Syrian Army, largely but not entirely made up of defectors from the government army, have in some cases got units which are quite Islamist themselves, not only crying Allah Akbar, but boasting of people whose heads they've cut off among the opposition and among civilians of the other side, that's to say those Muslims and in some cases Christians supporting the government. This is not a black and white picture, and the parallels with government ruthlessness 30 years ago against Hammer can also be made as parallels between the growing Islamist feelings of the opposition in Homs and the undoubted desire for an Islamist revolution in Hama 30 years ago. What do you think, then, the Western powers should be doing now with, with Homs and Syria generally? Well, the funny thing about the Western powers now is that the less they actually do and the less they are prepared to do, and the more they claim they can't do anything militarily, the more they rage against the regime and say that Bashar al-Assad must go. In other words, the hate ratio goes up against Bashar as the desire to actually do anything to help the opposition goes down. It's interesting that for once it's the Arabs, particularly the Arabs of the Gulf states, that want the opposition to be armed, whereas it is the West that does not. Should an international force go into Syria? If a UN force went in, it would need the permission of the Syrian authorities. And I think the Syrian Ba'ath Party is a lot tougher and the Syrian government is a lot tougher than we think it is. You know, when you're in Syria, and I was in Damascus just before Christmas, it doesn't feel like a regime that's about to collapse. And, you know, Madame Clinton can huff and puff at the United Nations or the State Department. And David Cameron can make pretty speeches and Mr. Sarkozy. But at the end of the day, remember that the Syrian Ba'ath Party is one of the original nationalist movements in the Arab world. It has very deep, sharp, hard roots. It took 25 years to get the Syrian government out of Lebanon. How long do you think it's going to take to get them out of their own country, Syria? Uh, This is a country whose minorities will fight brutally and ruthlessly to keep their own lives because they've been protected by the Ba'ath Party. I think that there may well be a civil war if there isn't already in Syria, but it's going to go on for a long time. The idea that you can just topple Assad by sending in an international force, I think that's a mirage. So what do you think's to come in Syria? I mean, is it indeed, as uh, President Obama said, uh, not a question of if but when Bashar al-Assad falls? What the Assad regime wants to do is to have some form of legitimate change, which will still allow the Ba'ath Party to exist, perhaps not in government, but it will still have some kind of honorable role in the regime, in, in, in the, if not in the government, in the country. Now, many people will tell you, particularly Syrians who've suffered so cruelly at the hands of the government, that this is long gone. The chances of that are have disappeared. I'm not entirely certain that's true. There might be some form of Ba'athism which might continue in some circumstances. But you see, I think that Bashar al-Assad has one major problem. He'd rather like, I think he always wanted to be the man who brought freedom of some kind to Syria. But now he's up against the revolution. 
if he tries to bring that freedom now and say, I'm with the people, not with the regime, he'll suffer a coup d'etat, a correctional movement, which is what his father staged against the old regime all those years ago, 40 years ago. Mm. There are people in the regime who will be so frightened that they will lose their lives if Bashar goes, that they will turn against him if he tries to make radical changes in the country now. So I came to the conclusion several months ago that what Bashar will do is soldier on and hope for the best, which is what he's doing. Robert Fisk, the Middle East correspondent for The Independent, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Spain has a new conservative government, and it's trying to roll back a series of progressive social policies passed by the former socialist government. That includes a 2005 law allowing same-sex marriage. Feeling under threat, one group of gays and lesbians is pushing for protections for their golden years. They're trying to open Spain's first gay-friendly retirement home. The world's Jerry Haddon has a story. Paulina Blanco is a 62-year-old retired school teacher. She's also a lesbian. She and her partner of 40 years recently began shopping for a retirement home in Barcelona. Blanco says she couldn't find any that were gay-friendly. Sitting in a Barcelona cafe, Blanco recounts how, on a recent visit to a traditional retirement home, the director told her he wouldn't give gays special consideration. Everyone's welcome, he said, whether you're gay, fascist, whatever. Blanco says lumping gays in with political extremists shows how little retirement home operators know about the special needs of aging gays and lesbians. Being gay is a part of you, she says. You can't just leave it at the door of a retirement home when you go in. My generation lived through the repressive years of the Franco dictatorship with its strict anti-gay laws. Some of us were thrown in jail, she says, driven from our communities, abused by the police. And so at this final stage of our lives, we want to be able to enjoy a good quality of life and the freedom that was denied us in our youth. Blanco says her family disowned her more than 40 years ago. Being gay in Spain was a crime until democracy came in the late 1970s. And even until 1988, gays displaying affection in public could be thrown in jail or forced into state-run re-education programs. But things have changed. Today, gay Spaniards can get married and adopt children. Both measures were passed by the socialist government that lost power four months ago. 53-year-old Federico Armentero says those newly gained rights are now under threat by the new government. The fight for equal rights is like anything, he says. You take a step forward and then a few back. During the last elections, the conservative popular party pledged to get rid of the gay marriage law in order to get the vote of the church. And they won. Since the vote, the rhetoric hasn't let up. Last month, Spain's new interior minister, Alberto Ruiz Gallardón, told Spanish radio that although he personally didn't see gay marriage as unconstitutional, he'd let the country's highest court decide. Critics say Gallardón's comment was disingenuous because the popular party filed suit against the gay marriage law to begin with. Federico Armentero says he fears that a repeal of the marriage law would only be the first step toward curbing broader rights for homosexuals. So he's planning to build a safe haven here on a scruffy lot in a town outside Madrid. If Armenteros and a group of supporters have their way, this empty field will soon host a retirement home for gays, lesbians, and transgenders. He says the high-visibility project serves not only to safeguard aging gays against discrimination. Lo que va a 
It'll contribute to the normalization of gays in society as well, he says. The idea is that within a generation, there won't be a need for a place like this because people will be used to us. People will be able to live alongside each other without thinking about differences. Armentero says retirement homes are especially hard for people who've had sex change operations because they can't keep their condition a secret from doctors and nurses. Usually, they stay away. He says, we know lots of people who say, I have the insulin syringe ready for the day when I'll have to kill myself rather than enter a retirement home. If they don't commit suicide, they live out their days alone and bitter. No one visits. When they die, no one knows it. Armentero says he's gotten queries from hundreds of gays around Spain anxious to move in one day, but he hasn't broken ground yet, even though the local town of Rivas Vacia Madrid has leased the land for free. Like so many building projects in Spain these days, the economic crisis has made funding for the gay-friendly retirement home harder than organizers expected. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon, Rivas Vacia Madrid, Spain. You can literally have the world in your hand. True. Our entire program is available as a podcast. We also offer downloadable versions of the Global Hit and the GeoQuiz. You can find out how to listen and subscribe at theworld.org slash podcasts. While you're there, be sure to check out our other audio offerings. We've got weekly podcasts on everything from language to science, from history to foreign policy. And it's not just recycled radio. Our, re- our weekly podcasts contain a lot of stories you won't hear on air. So check them out. Again, those podcasts at theworld.org slash podcasts. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands-on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at medtronicfoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. There's a new video online about an African militia leader, and it's gone viral. More than 36 million people have watched Kony 2012 on YouTube in just the past three days. The video is about Joseph Kony. He's the notorious leader of the Lord's Resistance Army, or LRA, which started in Uganda. Over several decades, Kony and his forces have kidnapped thousands of children and forced them to kill and commit atrocities. Kony has gotten media attention over the years, but this video is drawing attention to him in a whole new way. It's also drawing a lot of criticism. The world's Jason Margolis has more. The 30-minute video begins with some pictures of Earth from space, babies being born, and people using Facebook and Twitter. Humanity's greatest desire is to belong and connect. About three minutes into the video, we meet the filmmaker Jason Russell and his young son Gavin. He loves jumping on the trampoline, being a ninja, and dancing. At this point, it's not clear what this film is about. Ten minutes on, the filmmaker is at a table with his young son. This is the, this is the guy, Joseph Coney. He's the bad guy? Yeah. Joseph Coney, he has um, an army, okay? And what he does is he takes children from their parents and he gives them a gun to shoot and he makes them shoot and kill other people. Effective filmmaking, but also manipulative and narcissistic. My first reaction was like, oh, this is another uh, kind of video, uh, you know, glorifying somebody saving African children. Rosebell Kagumeyer is a Ugandan blogger. She says the film also gets the facts wrong. For one thing, Joseph Kony is no longer in Uganda. He and the LRA were driven out six years ago. 
The film doesn't make this clear, nor does it show the post-conflict rehabilitation going on in northern Uganda. Kagomaro says the film is overly simplistic. So I would not set my 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 video as a one bad guy against uh, other good guys. We know that this war has been very much complex. The armies involved have committed crimes themselves. So let's not uh, sensationalize an issue that is much deeper than this. I asked Ashley Benner what she thought of the film. She follows the LRA for the Enough Project, a DC-based organization that works to end genocide and crimes against humanity. She likes the video. It's a really important video. The story of the LRA and Joseph Kony has not been prominent in the attention of the international community, but it's a story that that really does need to reach far and wide. The film definitely accomplishes that. It's geared toward galvanizing teenagers, says Maria Burnett, a Uganda expert with Human Rights Watch. The film is not set up for sort of key policymakers or elites who are in a position to understand the dynamics and details and history of the conflict. That said, she says it does bring attention to an issue that has been easy for governments to overlook. There's one more controversial element to the film. At the end, the filmmaker and his organization, Invisible Children, suggests three ways to get involved. Two are donating money to his group. Everything you need is in a box called the Action Kit. It has two bracelets, one for you and one to give away. The action kit costs $30. Critics say the group spends too much of that money on making films and paying the filmmakers, and not enough on programs in Africa. The organization posts its yearly financial statements online. It says people are free to look, then decide for themselves if they want to donate. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis. Vladimir Putin may have claimed a resounding victory in Russia's presidential election, but his opponents in Moscow haven't given up their fight. They're planning another protest rally on Saturday. The protesters' anger is clearly focused on Putin, but where that anger comes from? Well, some say it began with a large-scale case of road rage. The world's Laura Lynch explains. To drive in Moscow requires heavy doses of patience and perseverance. In rush hour, it can sometimes take 30 minutes to travel one block. But there's one sound certain to make disconsolate drivers feel even worse. The sirens could mean an emergency, police, fire trucks or ambulances. But in Moscow, they might also warn of the approach of a government apparatchik. And when they come along with their blue flashing lights, they are the kings of the road. Everyone has to get out of the way or else. 32-year-old Peter Shkumatov found that out the hard way almost two years ago. Hello. Hello. Um, um, I'm sorry. One minute. Yes, okay. Amit Shkumatov parked on a busy street as he finishes a phone call with a friend. He owns a battered 2005 Nissan, and he invites me to go for a drive. In April of 2010, Shkumatov was hit by a car as he was crossing the street at a crosswalk. A sedan fit with the blue light of a high-ranking official ignored a red light. Shkumatov says he couldn't find anyone brave enough to testify, and that's when he had an awakening. He became an activist, armed with a blue plastic bucket. It's all about fairness and justice. We follow the rules of the road, and we demand that everyone else should follow them as well. And now it is a group. The Society of Blue Buckets are people who are fed up with motorcades and the power they represent. Power and Tushkumatov, contempt. He, like the others, keeps a small blue bucket taped to the roof of his car at all times. 
The group lobbies for an end to the flashing blue lights, and they post videos showing dangerous driving by the men in the dark sedans. And some of them now even refuse to pull over when the lights start flashing behind them. When he started, Shkumatov says he got pulled over all the time. When we started, we had serious problems with the police. But for the last year or so, a lot of the policemen are starting to support us and see us as a force that strives for justice. Shkumatov has now become almost obsessed with challenging authority. He quit his well-paid job in Internet marketing and now goes to court to help others facing unfair traffic charges. His activism has now also spread to politics. Uh, While we're driving, a radio station calls asking for an interview about the election results. He pulls over to the side of the road to offer his views. The blue buckets may be among the first of the citizens' groups formed to challenge those in power, and they still only number about 3,000 active members. Bashkumatov now sees that it was just the start of what has become a huge change in people's attitudes. In 2008, movements like ours didn't exist. In 2010, they were just in their infancy, when the blue buckets appeared. But now, the people who want change have become a group of hundreds of thousands, if not millions. We are clearly giving birth to a new movement, and it's obvious that this will only grow in the years to come. But grow into what? Shkumatov admits he has no idea what will happen in the next few days or even months with a protest movement that's still without an official leader or party. For the time being, he vows to work even harder to help people who face injustice. As we say goodbye, he poses for a moment beside his blue bucket for a photograph. He then gets back into his car and waits patiently to work his way back into traffic, crawling along. Slow, maybe but determined to make a difference. For The World, I'm Laura Lynch in Moscow. You might not know it here in the U.S., but today is International Women's Day. In Russia, it's a big deal. Laura Lynch reflects on International Women's Day in Russia at theworld.org. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, the negative side of tourism in India's Andaman Islands. Tourists are attracted to spot the tribes like animals in a safari park. And they also throw biscuits and sweets out of the window, just encouraging children to come out onto the road and to have that sort of interaction. That story coming up on The World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. When Burma shed British colonial rule and became independent in 1948, it was one of the wealthiest and best-educated countries in the region. Now, after almost half a century of repressive military rule, the country now known as Myanmar is one of the poorest. And until recently, it was among the most isolated. But recent political reforms have started to open the country up again, and Burmese are flocking to English classes to prepare for new opportunities. The world's Mary Kay Magsad visited a couple of classes in the capital, Yangon. To get to Miao Kiang's popular all-day English class, you walk down a dusty side street, into a tea shop, and through it to the other side. And there you are. 
There are some 500 students crammed into this makeshift space on low wooden benches. Their beefy, middle-aged teacher sits up front in a plaid shirt and a sort of male sarong called the longi, reading from the book he selected to teach his students English, The Master Key to Riches, a self-help book by Napoleon Hill, published in 1956. One of the students is a Buddhist monk. This book, it gives knowledge to me. That's why I study this English book. But then he admits he doesn't really get what the book's trying to say. I page through it. The front cover says, The world-famous philosophy of personal achievement based on the Andrew Carnegie formula for money-making. It includes praise for the art of salesmanship, the art of competition, the blessings of individual initiative, and the necessity of honest production to justify the art of advertising. I tell the monk I can see why this might be hard going for him, and he seems relieved. But Mia Kyung thinks the lessons in this book are perfect for young Burmese, especially at this moment in their country's opening up. Yes. So you see, in these books, we can get a lot of knowledge from business sense or social dealing. Mia Kyung is 53, so he grew up under military rule. In fact, he says, he served as Burma's military attaché in India in the late 80s and early 90s, so he was away during the 1988 crackdown. He says... He's glad to see the current reforms. He says they're very nice, but he seems a little wary. He doesn't know why the government is making these changes. The present government, they want something. They want something. I don't know what they are aiming. Otherwise, they they don't do like that. Whatever the military's aim, Mia Kyung says his students need the help with their English. He says many are poor and can't afford more expensive lessons elsewhere. Here, they pay about $4 a month, to come to as many classes as they like. Much of the class seems to be in Burmese. But 21-year-old student Myo Mian Ong says it's working for him. I am a lazy, lazy student. But, you know, I attend the class, so the teacher motivates me. Burmese schools teach English from kindergarten on, but Myo Mian Ong says that doesn't count for much. The teaching is bad, and there's little opportunity to practice. Our education system is uh, systematically destroyed, so uh, we have no knowledge of English. And yet, says 28-year-old engineering graduate Nankin Lei, English is essential for many professions. She says Myanmar is different from Thailand and Japan, where they translate the relevant subjects into their own languages. But in Myanmar, we had to learn the engineering or medicine through the English medium. Yes, if you don't know English, you cannot be expert in your subject. She's coming to this class, she says, because she's ashamed her English isn't better than it is. She's impatient to improve, an energy that seems shared by many young Burmese. This much smaller English class is taught by a nonprofit organization called Myanmar Egress. We have to educate the people to make the real positive changes here. So we're trying to be the chain agent. So, you know. Lala Win heads the English department here. She says Myanmar Egress runs many other classes too. Social entrepreneurship, which is the disguised name for political leadership course and management for those who want to join NGO workforce, and civic education and applying leadership, especially tailored for the ethnic minorities, and um, 
public policy for the MPs. In other words, Myanmar Egress is trying to train up a competent civil society to help Myanmar move in a new, more democratic direction. She says the military government had its suspicions when the group started doing this in 2006. So, in the classes of egress, the military intelligence, you know, they may sit down, or they videotape, record, and you know, report back. But they realize egress is just education institution. It's not trying to threaten their power. So they let us go, and they even sent their people to join the courses. Now, Myanmar Egress runs courses teaching international standards to police as well as to private citizens. Lala Win hopes all this training and education can lead to Myanmar once again becoming a regional leader in education, as it was in the 1950s. I don't want to compete with Thailand for tourist country. I don't want to compete with China factories. I don't want to compete with、uh, India with、uh, outsourcing. We have our own advantage. Even now, the international schools in Myanmar have a lot of neighboring students, like Korean, Thailand, Chinese. You know, it's way cheaper than their country, and they get in good standard education. So they started sending their kids to international schools in Myanmar. But this is in small scale. Take it larger, she says, and Burma can reclaim its competitive advantage as an education hub. Myakyang's classroom is certainly doing its bit. A couple of his students tell me he has inspired them to become English teachers themselves. Meanwhile, they're stuck into Napoleon Hill's exhortations to lead successful entrepreneurial lives. The teacher says when he gets through this book of Napoleon Hill's, he plans to teach all the rest. For the world, I'm Mary Kay Magstad, Yangon, Myanmar. The English language is a high-status language all over the world, including here in the U.S. And that status of English is a theme of the latest edition of our weekly language podcast, "The World in Words." Patrick Cox, you host the podcast, and for this edition, you spoke with Elizabeth Little.、Uh, she's just written a book about the many languages in America, past and present. That's right. The book is called "Trip of the Tongue." Cross-country travels in search of America's languages, and when she set out to write the book, she intended it as a kind of a whimsical road trip around the country's linguistic backroads. But it didn't really turn out that way because Little made, through the course of her reportage, she made this interesting and and somewhat contentious connection. As she found out more about the attempts to. I think we can agree eliminate Native American languages in the 19th century in favor of English. She found echoes of those policies in today's English-only movement.、Mm. You know、uh, those laws in more than 30 states and some cities and counties to establish English as the official language and limit the use of other languages. Here's how Little sees it. The tools used and suggested to try to encourage the acquisition of English are. are Quite different, much less destructive, I would suggest now. But I'm not entirely certain that the philosophies underlying those policies are hugely different.、Uh, you still have politicians who are very adamant in their suggestions, and I'm, and I'm not sure it's it's wrong that English is a very powerful tool of of economic advancement. However, the suggestion that Someone else needs to be involved in a person's language decision making. You know about which language they're going to speak 
about which languages they're going to learn, about which languages they're going to encourage their children to learn. I personally find it ironic that certain conservatives would like to be involved in that private decision. And I should add, Marco, that although the English-only movement is mainly led by conservatives, these referendums are often overwhelmingly approved. Now, Patrick, apparently Elizabeth Little also visited several Indian reservations. What did she find out about the state of those indigenous languages? Well, most of those languages are dying out pretty rapidly if they haven't already died out, despite some, in some cases, heroic attempts to sustain them. Uh, There was one trip she did take to the town of Forks in Washington State. Forks is the setting of the Twilight series. Yeah, these books that all the teenagers are reading, uh, modern vampires. That's right. And what I'm about to tell you is largely not news to any Twilight fans. But one of the characters in the series is a member of the Quileute tribe, whose reservation is nearby Forks. And in one of the Twilight movies, he utters a Quileute phrase. It's in a love scene. Here it is. Did you get that? Corkloutle? What, yeah. what do you think it means? When's a sequel coming out? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> according to tribal members, it is good Quileute. It makes perfect sense in Quileute. Mm. The context suggests perhaps that it is a declaration of love, but we don't know for sure. Here's Elizabeth Little again. The Quileute tribe issued a statement on Facebook saying that they were going to respect Jacob's privacy, and that's the the fictional character's name. They're going to respect his privacy and not reveal what it was he said in the movie. It's not a very well-attested language. I mean, there's certainly no textbooks about Quileute. And certainly for your average, you know, 14 or 15-year-old who is not uh, hugely conversant in linguistic terminology or the literature isn't going to be able to find anything about Quileute. So you just have a lot of hopeful speculation. Writer Elizabeth Little there. You can hear her conversation with the world's Patrick Cox in the latest World in Words podcast. Just go to theworld.org. Patrick, thanks as always. You're welcome, Marco. Now for our GeoQuiz today, we want your help putting the Andaman Islands on the map. So name the body of water, if you can, where this tropical island territory of India is located. Marco Polo may have been the first to write about the inhabitants of these islands, and they still seem to fascinate visitors today. Many hope to catch a glimpse of the indigenous islanders known as the Jarawa. The Jarawa are a hunter-gatherer tribe, and we believe their ancestors were part of the first successful migrations out of Africa. And they're now a hunter-gatherer people living on on the islands in an area of rainforest. They hunt monitor lizard and wild boar and uh, small birds. They collect honey, and they also, at different times of the year on the coast, they collect turtles and fish. And they've thrived on their islands for 55,000 years, but now are threatened by pressure from outsiders and exploitation. Sophie Grieg is a campaigner for Survival International, an organization that advocates for the rights of tribal peoples worldwide. So this pressure comes in some various forms, and one of the most uh, intriguing, maybe disturbing, uh, are these human safaris. What are they, and, and just how disruptive is this form of tourism for the Jarawa? Well, it's, it's, 
it's horrible, really, the notion of a human safari, but that's really what it boils down to. The most common is where tourists are attracted to go through the road. A road was cut through the centre of the Jaros forest, and uh, tourists are attracted to go on this road just to spot the tribes, like um, animals in a, a safari park. And they also throw biscuits and sweets out of the window at the Jarrah, just encouraging children to come out onto the road and to have that sort of interaction. There are certain restrictions to try and stop people doing this, but there have been uh, violations of this. Police officers have been bribed to allow the convoy to stop and for tourists to get out and to be able to take video of the Jarrah women dancing, uh, not wearing many clothes and and these videos have then been posted and shared around with tourists in the Andaman Islands. It's really disgraceful. So the local authorities uh, don't seem to be uh, very effective. Uh, on the contrary, maybe even counterproductive. The most recent shocking news is that um, a policeman who was put in charge of monitoring the interaction between tourists and the and the tribal people has recently um, just this week been found to have organized his own private VIP safari where he got the police who were supposed to be protecting the tribe to hold uh, a number of Jarrah people back as they were on their way to do some fishing in a creek and wait for his family to be able to take photos to have their own private safari. And this is the second most senior policeman in the Andamans. And it really just shows how pervasive this attitude is that, you know, these people are a a curiosity for the entertainment of outsiders rather than people with rights and that need to be respected. Is there any sign that protections for the Jarawa will be put in place? Well, there's been a huge furore about the human safaris in the last couple of months. And we really hope that that pressure will start to bear down on the authorities to make sure that the road that cuts through the heart of their reserve is is closed. People can go by sea and they don't have to go through the forest. If The administration just needs to prioritise that so the Jarrah can control the level of contact they have. They've only been having any sort of friendly contact with the settlers and people around for about 12 years, which is a tiny amount of time in terms of developing immunity to diseases and they're incredibly vulnerable to exploitation as we've seen with these human safaris so it's essential that their land is protected the road is closed and then they will be in a position to make their own choices about how much contact and how much interaction and how how they want to live their way of life you know i remember the account of a woman from south africa who was put on display in a cage in london in the 19th century you know it was like a freak show and the the impresario just wanted to sell tickets i got to say this feels quite similar and i'm just wondering why is it even happening in the 21st century is it about money i don't think it's about money so much i think it's people are sucked into this notion of the exotic and the primitive and want to go and look at it and until we we change people's attitude make people realize that the Jarrah are people with rights that deserve to be respected i fear that this is going to go on sophie grieg a campaigner for survival international in london she's been telling us about the Jarrah people of the andaman islands that are located in the bay of bengal bay of bengal is the answer to our geo quiz sophie thanks very much for telling us about this thank you very much Still to come on the world, cold, hard drives and warm, fuzzy vinyl on PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Unless you've been hiding under a rock, you've heard about the new iPad. So yet another shiny must-have Apple product is about to hit store shelves. 
But Apple's to-die-for gadgets can actually be deadly for the Chinese workers making them. A one-man show now on at New York City's Public Theater explores that prickly issue. Bruce Wallace has a story. First, a few disclosures. I'm writing this script on an iMac. If I were traveling, I'd be writing on my MacBook or my iPad. If my editor were to call, he'd reach me on my iPhone. If I wanted to ignore his call, I could turn the music up louder on my iPod. I'm in deep. But Mike Daisy, he's somewhere altogether deeper. I am at the level of geekishness where, to relax, after performances like this one, sometimes I will go back to my apartment and I will field strip my MacBook Pro into its 43 component pieces. I will clean them with compressed air and I will put them back together again. (laughs) It soothes me. That's a bit of Daisy's one-man show, The Agony and Ecstasy of Steve Jobs. In the show, Daisy describes how his obsession with Apple products led him to uncomfortable discoveries about how those products are made. He travels to China and talks to workers outside the massive Foxconn factory in Shenzhen, where half-million employees churn out tons of stuff for Apple, HP, Dell, Nokia, and other electronics companies. During his time in China, Daisy hears stories of workers as young as 12, of nerve damage caused by sprays used to clean iPhone screens, and of debilitating injuries that could be avoided if workers were regularly rotated from one job to another. He says it strains belief to suggest that Apple is unaware of these conditions. Do you really think Apple doesn't know? In a company obsessed with the details, with the aluminum being milled just so, with the glass being fitted perfectly into the case, do you really think it's credible that they don't know? Or are they just doing what we're all doing? Do they just see what they want to see? Apple has lately stepped up its efforts to see to monitor and report factory conditions. For the past few years, the company has been conducting audits of their factories. The last report, released a few weeks ago, showed marginal improvement in six of the eight labor-related categories, though there's still a lot wrong. Independent monitors have just started inspecting Foxconn plants in China, including the one Daisy visited. And Foxconn just announced a 25% wage increase for some of its Chinese workers. Daisy says these moves don't go nearly far enough. They need to look at hours, especially, the incredible amount of overtime. People work. They drive people into the ground. They need to look at the entire way Apple releases products. Because when Apple releases a product, that wave of creating mania, the fact that all the people wait outside those lines of those stores, that has a direct effect on the people who have to try to supply that mania. You know, people don't understand that that system can actually be deadly. Daisy thinks that, as one of the most powerful players in the tech industry, Apple can do a lot more to ensure that factories are safe. He says as much in a letter handed to people leaving his performances, writing that if Apple put some of its profits back into factories, it would, quote, transform how all electronics are manufactured across the globe. Li Qiyang, director of China Labor Watch, says this is crucial, and he's happy to see that this is getting attention in the theater of all places. If Apple doesn't agree to share some of its profits with some of their factories and increase the production price, then there's no way that the supply factories can improve their working and living conditions for their workers. Apple and Foxconn didn't respond to my questions for this story. If, as an American consumer, these revelations about Chinese manufacturers have you looking at your electronics a bit differently these days, you're not alone. Makes me sick. Yeah, absolutely. 
really, really sick. I talked to Ellen Hauptman and her husband, Martin, outside of the public theater after one of Mike Daisy's recent performances. He ends it by saying, open up your computer and think about who made it. And I think that we're going to do exactly that. And it's scary, really, really scary. Mike Daisy says that people who are concerned about the issues he raises in the show and are wondering what they should do are, in fact, already doing something. Even being aware of it as an issue and beginning to think about it now and being conscious and having those conversations is actually, that's activism. Guo Rei Chiang worked for Chinese manufacturer Wintech and has permanent nerve damage because of a toxic chemical he used to clean iPhone screens. He's 29 and pretty down about the future, about finding work and someone to marry. I asked him what he would tell people just learning how their iPhones are made. He, like Daisy, thought that awareness was a start. I hope fans of Apple will know that the products they use require us to make a sacrifice. For The World, I'm Bruce Wallace. The Agony and the Ecstasy of Steve Jobs runs through March 18th at the Public Theater in Manhattan. Thanks to our friends at This American Life for help with the story. There's a special live performance of the play with a Q&A by Ira Glass. That's in Chicago on April 7th. We end our program today in Senegal. I was there just over a week ago to report on the country's contentious presidential election. And for someone who's long admired the music of Senegal, it was weird to find barely any music going on. Many of the winter tourists were absent, fearing election-related violence. A lot of the dance clubs were closed, so local artists had no venues to gig in. Radio stations in the capital, Dakar, were still playing classic Senegalese tunes, though, and that was a welcome blast of musical air, especially when they'd spin older, rarer tunes from the 70s and 60s. Fortunately for anyone visiting Senegal, but especially for those who may never go there, those old tracks can now be found without having to tune into the radio in Dakar. That's thanks to Taranga Beat, a new record label based in Dakar. Its founder is a Greek DJ who years ago fell in love with Senegalese music, especially its 1960s Afro-Cuban iterations. The label's first release features a band called Sahel. Its lead singer, Idrissa Jop, helped steer modern Senegalese music from its early Latin beat sound to a more authentically Senegalese dance groove. Taranga Beat has unearthed hundreds of old vinyl records from warehouses and private homes in Dakar. So this first collection is bound to be just the tip of the iceberg. And just listen to this iceberg. I've got a blog post you can check out on the evolution of Senegalese music and another one featuring some of the striking graffiti around Dakar. They're both at theworld.org. And if you're interested in smaller doses of the online world, then follow me on Twitter. I'm at Marco Werman, one word. That's all for us today from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. Thanks for listening.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Plowshares Fund, investing in peace and security worldwide, plowshares.org. The National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. And NASA, leading research on the Earth and its climate from the vantage point of space. PRI Public Radio International.